right now, though, to the world. Anne Frank is the name of a girl who kept a diary while hiding from the Nazis in a secret apartment in Amsterdam. She is a symbol of hope in the darkest of times. To Hannah Pick Gosler, she was a dear childhood friend who talked a lot, played hopscotch, and loved Shirley Temple movies. The two friends would end up at the same concentration camp. And although Hannah survived, Anne and her sister didn't. Just before Hannah and Frank's friend died last year, she worked with journalist Dina Kraft, whose own family survived the war by fleeing to New Zealand. And Hannah's life is a reminder to the world about what might have been if Anne, Frank and millions of others had been allowed to live. Uh, the book is called My Friend Anne Frank, The Inspiring and Heartbreaking True Story of Best Friends Torn Apart and Reunited Against All Odds. And journalist Dina Kraft joins me now. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Good morning for me, at least. <laughs> yeah, good afternoon from New Zealand, uh, a country to which you and your family have a bit of a connection. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, New Zealand is part of the why I'm sit sitting here talking to you right now. Huh. Um, <laughs> my grandparents were desperate sitting um, in Trieste, Italy, where they were living, um, trying to figure out what they would do as the Nazis were approaching. My grandmother wrote letters across the world begging for entry. Um, and um, my grandfather um, had a particular desire to go to New Zealand because he had a map on the wall of um, uh, the cafe that they owned in Trieste, a map of the world. And he said that New Zealand was at the very bottom of the mm. globe. And he decided, we're going to go there. That is the furthest place from Europe. That will be the safest place. And so many countries turned Jews away. Um, and that's one of the reasons the Franks went into hiding, they, because they had nowhere to go. How did your grandfather get permission to come to this country on the other side of the world? Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. He happened to have been an engineer and an engineer who specialized in asbestos. <laughs> and he had put that on the application form. And lo and behold, at the time in New Zealand, they were wondering if the um, uh, asbestos, asbestos that there was in Nelson, New Zealand, I understand, um, was viable um, for use. And so um, they gave him a visa on that basis that he'd be able to come to New Zealand with the entire family, be able to check out um, New Zealand's uh, asbestos reserves and see if they'd be able to use in, in industry. So that asbestos, that toxic material, um, helped save my family. Gosh. Did you... Yeah, and they arrived, they arrived just three days before World War II began. Um, they arrived in, in, in New Zealand. So it was really remarkable that they... Yeah. And did you, Dina, like, like millions of other people around the world, read the Diary of Anne Frank when you were young? I did. I did. I read the, the diary in America is assigned often to seventh graders, seventh, eighth graders, middle schoolers. Um, and um, I remember being, we were assigned the book and I, you know, I, I knew that Anne Frank did, does not survive. But by the time I got to the end of the book, I felt that Anne Frank had become my friend. Huh. She was funny and insightful and she squabbled with her parent, mother, especially, and she got trouble in, in class for speaking um, too much, which something I could relate to as a kid mm. at the same time. And I really felt like she was my friend. I really felt this deep, deep connection and bond. And I remember getting to the last page, um, you know, she's an entry and then the last page is just a very brief summary of her arrest and de deportation. And that she's, you know, taken to Auschwitz with her family and then eventually um, dies in Bergen-Belsen with her sister. 
And I just burst into tears. I was so distraught. Mm -hmm. I felt like I'd lost this friend and then I grieved this friend tremendously. So I felt this incredible bond um, to her always. In fact, Hannah, uh, excuse me, uh, Anne Frank had friends in, in real life and one of them was Hannah Pitt-Gosler who eventually asked you to work on a book with her. Why did you say yes when so much had already been said and written about Anne Frank? Well, I had been lucky enough to meet um, to meet Hannah uh, in 1998. I was working for the Associated Press in Jerusalem. Um, a um, a book for children of about 10 or 11 years old came out, a, a slim biography of Hannah's life by someone named um, Alison Gold. And uh, I remember being assigned the story and I was so excited to meet, you know, here I felt like I had been friends with Anne Frank myself in some way. And here I was yeah. meeting a real life friend of hers. And I met her and we had this incredible interview and it made a lasting impression on me. And I always remembered meeting Hannah. I was so taken by her and her stories of Anna as a very ordinary girl, you know, which is such in contrast to the sort of icon that she has become sort of this holy figure almost for some people. And um, so when the opportunity arose for me to sit down and work with her memoir, I said immediately, yes. I mean, it felt in some ways like I was preparing for this my whole life, you know, my own family story, which you mentioned from refugees from the Holocaust and from the Nazis. And then, of course, I had written a lot about Holocaust survivors over the year based here in Israel. What's different about Hannah, I guess, is that she could actually, she must be one of the few people in the world or must have been one of the few people who could give a really realistic portrayal of who Anne Frank really was. Exactly. You know, um, she always said that Han that Anna, I mean, I'll, on the one hand, I mean, I call her Anna because I sat with her for, you know, all these months talking and she was she was Anna Frank, you know, not Anne yeah, Frank, she was okay. Anna Frank. <laughs> and so they were Anna and Hannah and they had a third friend named Zana. <laughs> there were three, Hannah, Anna and Zana. Wow. Tragically, Zana was also murdered um, in the Holocaust. Um, and so, um, yes, I mean, she was, she was the only one who could, one of the few people left, right. Who could talk about like, you know, moving back the furniture in Zana's apartment and playing gymnastics and could talk about, you know, how cheeky Anne was, um, in class and how they got in trouble together for cheating on a, um, I think it was a French test together. <laughs> um, and, um, could also talk about life in the home, you know, could talk about the dynamics between the Frank parents could talk about, the very warm Shabbat dinners um, um, they would have together as families and they celebrated Jewish holidays together. She could talk about Otto Frank's optimism and how he was different from her own father, who was very pessimistic about what was going to happen. And Otto Frank was always, no, 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 the allies are coming soon. Their allies are coming soon. Just hold fast. Um, and um, and really brought to life, you know, their own dynamic and their own, you know, they were they were girls together. They met when they were only four years old. They were they were instantly best friends. Um, and they, you know, also had squabbles of young girls as well. Um, and so the sort of the real Anna that she was, they were real girls and real people and incredibly relatable. They were not different from you and I. Why did she want to tell the story after all this time? She was 93 when she connected yeah. with you to work on this book and, and her health was failing, failing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, she was approached, um, to tell the story and she decided she wanted to do it because it was sort of a continuation of what she had been doing for decades. Um, she and uh, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah Pick Goslar was one of the few um, early early people to talk about their experiences in the Holocaust. Um, you know, now we think of Holocaust survivors, you know, being open and speaking to large audiences and um, having the interviews recorded and, and telling their stories. But in the early days, 
people didn't want to hear about the Holocaust. People didn't, there wasn't even a name for the Holocaust yet. I mean, it took, it took, it took I think until the 1960s for the, t- for the term to be phrased, to coined rather. Um, you know, when Anna comes back to Holland after the war, I mean, she's weighs 30 kilos. She's been through Bergen-Belsen where, where she had this remarkable reunion with Anna Frank. Um, and, um, you know, she's almost died. And uh, she, like other survivors, come back to Holland and nobody wants to hear their story. The Dutch themselves have been through what they call the hunger winter of 1945. People were, you know, desperate and, and, and eating tulip bulbs to survive. And they didn't want to hear the story of, of the Jews who came back. Um, but in 1957, after um, Anne Frank's diary has already become an international sensation and the play has also um, come out on Broadway, Otto Frank basically taps Hannah and asks her to go to America and tell the story of Anna and tell the story of her own story of survival. Um, and she goes on an 18 city tour. And it was really remarkable. Again, it was a time where most survivors were not telling their story. And from that day forth, she continues telling her story, um, especially when she retired from being a nurse. She um, uh, is going around the world, you know, to South Africa, to Japan, to Europe, to the States, um, and tells her story because she thinks it's essential that pe- that people know the Jews were killed just because they were Jews and that hate kills and that racism and hatred are cautionary tales and that we have to be ever vigilant. Um, by the way, I got a message from a listener who's halfway through this book and finding it absolutely compelling. So well done for your work on it, Dina. Um, Thank you. Let's hear a bit of Hannah's story because it reminds us that surviving the Holocaust for so many comes down to decisions, big and small. Her family actually got out of Germany. They got to England, but it didn't work out. What happened? Yeah, so Hannah's family unusually um, uh, were religious Jews. I say unusually because her father had been grown up as a secular Jew in Germany, um, you know, had a Christmas tree on Christmas. And during World War I, um, serves in Lithuania, encounters Hasidic Jews there and is completely mesmerized um, by their by their big families and their warmth, and their spirituality. And he goes back to Berlin as a dedicated um, um, a Jewish, I mean, a observant Jew, including uh, keeping the rules of kashrut, keeping the dietary laws. And when he gets to England and has a job there, um, he's told he's going to have to work on Saturday. He's going to have to work on the Jewish Sabbath, something that he cannot do as an observant Jew. So <laughs> um, he decides to move on with the family and they go to, they go to Amsterdam. Mm. Why Amsterdam? He, he called it the Jerusalem of the West, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, Amsterdam, you know, um, was a place I think he had uh, some connection and it was also bordering Germany. Remember, you know, um, people thought that things would blow over and they'd go back home eventually. Right. I mean, we see today Ukrainian refugees. Where do they go in largest numbers? To neighboring Poland. You mm-hmm. wait it out. You think you're going to be able to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the case there, too. At that point, you could still travel in between. There was no war yet. You'd still travel. Um, in fact, Hannah and her mother go back um, to, to Berlin at least once to visit family. Um, and that's actually where she first encounters the anti-Jewish laws, the Nuremberg laws. She's walking in their old neighborhood and she sees um, a public pool that she used to go to. And there's a sign that says Jews not allowed. She says, asks her mother, what, what, what's going on? What is that? And that's sort of the beginning of her realization of very, very beginning, early stages of her beginning of, of, of this discrimination that she's going to face herself back in Holland once the Germans invade. Um, and I think about sort of, you know, you mentioned the caller who feels moved by the book. I'm quite, you know, overwhelmed by the response of readers um, to the book. But I think part of what might speak to them is that we think we know the Holocaust or people know the sort of the grand outlines 
six million Jews killed, um, places, names of places like Auschwitz. But when in the book, you're with Hannah in real time going through um, through the experience of the noose tightening, you know, and the dawning realization of, of the horror of what's happening. But you're seeing it through her eyes and you're seeing it through her eyes as a child. Um, and I think people are also drawn to it because it's telling the story that that Anna didn't get and Frank herself didn't get to tell because we see Anna inside the diary, inside her head, writing very emotionally, very deeply. She's also, of course, talking about what's happening in the outside world, but she's imagining it and she's reporting on it from what she's hearing on radio reports, um, but she's not seeing it up close. And Hannah is seeing it up close. The two of them became fast friends. What sort of what sorts of things did they get up to? Oh, gosh. Um, they loved to do uh, – they, they were both quite into mischief, for example. Um, they would visit um, Otto Frank's office together, and they would, uh, you know, um, on Sundays, and they would take glasses of water. Um, and from his very, very the, – the, 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 his building was – his office was in a high floor. And they would uh, take water and spill it out the window on uh, passerbys on the sidewalk <laughs> below them. Huh. Um they they also you know they played hopscotch and Monopoly. They went to the movies. They loved Popeye. They collected cards of royal family members, including the Dutch royal family. But they were also enamored by the British royal family. Remember, Queen Elizabeth was born just a year before they were. They were she was a contem- um, contemporary of theirs. Um, so they followed her as a princess. Um, they um, liked movie stars. They read books together. Um, they went on vacations together. Um, you know, they were, and they went to school together every day as well. Um, and they were in this uh, beloved Montessori school um, that was very sort of free thinking and open, a liberal school. Um, and um, yeah, they just, um, they were very much in, interwoven in each other's lives, as were their families. And they lived in a neighborhood of Jeru- of, of Amsterdam um, that was in South Amsterdam, um, a sort of a leafy, pretty sort of family friendly, slightly quieter part of the city. And um, it was a place where a lot of German Jewish refugees had also moved in. So it was very much an enclave of other German Jews. And so they had brought with them some of their culture from from places like Berlin, um, including um, uh, Sunday afternoon concerts in people's living rooms um, and long dinners and speaking about, you know, literature. And they tried to sort of recreate in some ways that world that was lost to them. And they were very much in mourning for that world, especially Anne Frank's mother and Han- Hannah's mother, they very much missed their lives back in Berlin and um, in Frankfurt in the case of the Frank family. Yeah, both families, proud German families, actually. Um, I'm talking to Dina Kraft, whose book is called My Friend Anne Frank, the inspiring and heartbreaking true story of best friends torn apart and reunited against all odds. It's the story of Hannah Pitt Gosler, who was friends with Anne Frank, uh, was sent to the same concentration camp um, and talks about Otto Frank as well. The, um, In fact... Uh, had some. She described him as a very hands-on father. Yeah, he was, which is sort of unusual for that day. He was very involved in his girls, his his two daughters, but also their friends. Took great interest in them and what they were up to. Um, sang silly songs for them. They had a. They had a, when they were little. They loved to watch him pour the beer into his glass and watch the foam reach the top but not spill all the way over. Um, he was. Uh, he would tell Anna stories at night together. They would tell. Um, they create bedtime stories together. And on their walks to school, um, she would tell Hannah about the stories that her father would tell them. He taught Hannah how to ride a bicycle. She was very clumsy and never quite learned, despite his best efforts. Um, but he was a very loving, firm, loving presence um, in their lives. 
and um, sort of twinkly eyes, and again, always optimistic, which really, which really um, spoke to, to Anna, to Anna, and Anna. Um, and after the war, he became a steadfast supporter of Hannah's, and uh, basically sort of a, in some ways, like a surrogate father to her. And, and, and he signed all of his letters to her until the end of his days, um Otto, Uncle Otto. Um, and um, uh, in a particularly sort of tragic moment for uh, in, in their story, uh, um, Hannah receives a letter just after the war. She's convalescing um, at a hospital in Maastricht and, and, and in Holland. And she gets a letter from Otto Frank. And she's delighted because she wants to tell him that, you know, that Margot and Anna are alive because when she encountered Anna, they still were in the camps. And so she reads this letter and he says, have you any word of Hannah or Anna? And she's delighted, you know, to tell him the good news. So when he walks into the hospital room, the first thing she says to him is Hannah is Anna, you know, Anna and Margot are alive. And he looks at her and has to tell her the very, very terrible news, which he himself had just received, you know, uh, I think the week before that they were in fact not ever going to be coming home. Yeah. The day that she discovered that Anne Frank's family had left, the details were so clear to her, weren't they, even after 80 years? Oh, yeah. I mean, they were completely imprinted in her mind. I mean, I think a few things, you know, um, I think that age bracket, you know, she was she was um, 13 years old um, uh, when, when, and, when, Anne, when the Frank family went into hiding. And it's an age where you remember things. It's an age we now know that, you know, you learn how to play the recorder or play a guard game. You remember those things. And then plus it was a, it was a jolting moment. It was a tragic moment. Um, so in, in that way, it was also seared into her memory. You know, it was a July, it was exactly what today is July 6th. It was exactly, uh, um, it was, I can't remember the exact date, but it was, it was the first week of July yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1942. So here we are all these years later, exactly yeah. almost to the day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's remarkable. Right. Um, and uh, she goes to, uh, uh, deliver um, to, or sorry to borrow a scale from um, Mrs. Frank for her mother for making jam, and she's also there to play with Anna. And she knocks on the door, and for the very first time in her life, someone else opens the door. It's not a Frank family member. It's the they have a boarder who lives in the house, and he's sort of gruff, and he's like, "What are you doing here?" And he says, "Don't you know the Frank family has gone?" And she says, "What do you mean the Frank family is gone?" And he says, "Yes, it appears they've gone to Switzerland," and she's so shocked because. You know, things were getting very difficult at this time, but this is the first family that's gone into hiding. She, of course, doesn't know they're into hiding. She thinks they've escaped to Switzerland. Um, but um, this was very shocking information. And she returns with her other best friend, um, Jacqueline Van Marston, um, to see if if perhaps Anna's left a clue, you know, in her bedroom. Perhaps she left a, a goodbye note for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they also know of her diary because her birthday party had just been two weeks earlier, her 13th birthday party. And for her 13th birthday, she her most beloved present was this diary. And they knew about the diary. And being a 13-year-old girl in her diary, she had she had written a list of their classmates and what she thought about them. And the girls knew about this list. And so they wanted to sort of find her diary and 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 um, and look for it in the in the in if she'd left it behind and see what they would written about, you know, themselves and their classmates. But they go into the apartment and they're shocked. The breakfast dishes are still in the sink, the beds are unmade, which is very uncharacteristic of the very tidy and orderly Frank family, but they had left, it looked like in a hurry. Um, and they go into her room and they discover that they've, you know, the, the diary is not there, but a lot of things are like a brand new, a brand new pair of shoes. She's gotten for her birthday that she'd wanted for a long time and some of her favorite books and games. And that doesn't make much sense. Why would she leave without some of her favorite things? And most shocking of all, they see her cat, her beloved cat Morchi was there and they couldn't imagine Anna leaving her cat behind. So they were left very confused um, um, and sort of addled um, 
that Anna was gone. But as time passed on, um, by the time they were back in school in September, every day a different child was missing um, during roll call. Um, and they didn't know if that kid was, de- they didn't know if that child was deported or if they were, um, um, or, or if they had gone into hiding. But at least Anna, Anna, she thought, was safe in Switzerland where she had family. And it gave her great sort of comfort to know that Anna was safe in Switzerland, which made it even more shocking when they encounter each other in the depths of hell, which is what Bergen Belsen was at the time that they meet each other. Yeah. How, how did, uh, how did that, because Hannah's family was were one of the last families rounded up in um, Amsterdam. Sorry to use that horrific uh, verb, but it was a bit like that. How did Hannah find out that she and Anne were in the same camp? Yeah, um, good question. Well, Anna, she was, um, Anna was in um, a part of a camp that was called the Star Camp. And um, the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp was a concentration camp with many, many subcamps in it. And at one point, the women um, in, in Hannah's part of the camp saw tents being built across a fence and women being um, sort of uh, coming in and living in them, women in black and white striped pajamas, very gaunt, very skinny. Um, Hannah's part of the camp was slightly more privileged. And so uh, they weren't they they didn't look as emaciated as the people across the fence from them. And um, and then the Germans decided there, was, there should be no connection between the fences. People should not talk to each other. They didn't want any fraternization. Um, but women being women uh, who were hungry for information started talking, especially when they heard Dutch on the other side of the fence. And it came across um, the transom, as it were, from a neighbor of, of Hannah's that Anna and Margot Frank were across the fence, were one among those women there. And um, Hannah was absolutely shocked because she thought she was having you know, hot chocolate with her grandmother in Switzerland. She had this sort of idealized version of, you know, um, Anna safe and sound in Switzerland. And even though it was very dangerous to approach the fence, even though the Germans had made a rule that if you approach the fence, you'd be shot right, um, you know, on the spot, she had to find out. She had to know if Anna was truly there and how she was. So in a very cold February night in the rain and sleet, she goes out on this very dangerous path after curfew and she approaches the fence and calls out for, um, calls out, hello, anybody there? And remarkably, a voice answers her. And it's the voice of August van Pels, who was one of the women who was also in hiding with the Frank family and who also knew Hannah's family. And sort of almost in a casual voice says, oh, you must be here for Anna. I will bring her to you. Margot is too sick to come. And that is when they have their very heart-rending reunion um, on opposite sides of this fence in Bergen-Belsen. Yeah. Um, I might let people read about that in the book. It's a pretty... uh... It's a pretty tough um, sequence of events, tough conversation. Let's see if we can finish on a brighter note. And how did Hannah survive? Hannah survived um, um, in the camps in part by by the solidarity of other women helping other women, which is also the story of her. If you read the book, you'll hear the story of how Hannah tries to help Anna even from across the fence. uh, she, other women come together and help each other and kind of create sort of um, de facto family groups. She's also survived, she always says, because she's with, she's in the camp, don't forget, with her little baby sister, who's only two and a half when they leave, when they're, when they're arrested in Amsterdam and four by the end of the war. So she has to keep her sister alive all this time. And that kind of keeps her going, even though, you know, she has typhus, even though she's, you know, even though they're starving by the end and, and both very sick by the end, um, she she has sort of her sister to keep to keep her going, and um, when she does finally survive and emerges, um, she's actually put on this terrible train. It's called the eventually called the Lost Train. It's a train 
um, that the Germans have put the sort of the last Jews of Bergen-Belsen that are still sort of almost standing. Most of them back in Bergen-Belsen are, are, are dying or, or dead or almost dying. And they're taking them to a place called Theresienstadt, another concentration camp where they're planning to actually kill them. Um, but this, this, this train takes a circuitous route over 13 days through East Germany uh, amidst bombings. And um, eventually the Russian troops liberate um, the train. And Hannah and her sister emerge into this German village where they forage for food and eventually survive um, uh, that experience and are brought to Holland where they recuperate. But at this point, they're the only surviving members of their family. I think it's important to note that 75% of Jews in Holland are murdered in the Holocaust. Among them, you know, Anna and Frank and her and her sister and her mother, and also um, Hannah's father and grandparents. Dina, Hannah said to you, she said, will anyone be interested in the story? <laughs> <laughs> What's the response been like to the book? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's been tremendous. Um, it's a bestseller. Uh, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list and also the bestseller list in Canada. Um, people are responding with incredible emotion. Um, people who are both close to the Holocaust story, but remarkably to me, people who are not close. Every morning I open my email and I'm getting um, letters from people in Louisiana and in Kentucky and all sorts of places around the world saying how moved they are by the story. And again, it's a story both of, you know, of, of, of um, terrible tragedy and war, but also a story of love, of friendship and how friendship goes on um, and um, connection. And, and I think very much a story of humanity in the face of utter degradation. Thank you for the work you've put into it. Thanks so much for telling us about it today. Thank you. And thank you to New Zealand for, for saving my family. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, Dina Craft, journalist who has uh, co-written with Hannah Pick-Gosler this book. It's called My Friend Anne Frank, the inspiring and heartbreaking true story of best friends torn apart and reunited against all odds.